Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, There's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. The show you're about to listen to may contain themes of violence, occult activities, strong language, and other sensitive material. With an emphasis on cults, murder, and other adult matters, listener discretion is advised. On Cult Leader, I strive for telling stories in a truthful matter, though press, media, and other resources cannot always be verified. Sources can be found in the show notes. Welcome back to Cold Leader. I'm your Cold Leader, Spencer Henry, and I am thrilled for this week's episode because this is a story unlike anything we have covered before. The second I heard about this story, I was like, I got to know more about this. If you were at our live show in Florida, you will definitely recognize this story as Madison touched on it during our tour of the kitchen, if you know, you know. But as soon as she told me about Francis, I was like, I need to do a deep dive on this woman and how she became known as the mother of forensic science. So I thought, who better to join us for this episode than Miss Madison Reyes? Well, thank you for having me. Hello. Thanks for finding this story. Oh my gosh, I'm actually so excited to hear your deep dive on it because I just literally touched the surface with it and like read a couple paragraphs about this woman. So I am very excited to know more. Well, I feel like always with our live shows, especially, I always love all the little stories that we have, but we don't obviously go that in depth in our research of them. And honestly, I, when you first told me about Francis Glessner Lee, I was like, oh, that's like a really interesting story, which is 
there's part of it that we'll get to later on that you guys will see and just the pictures were cool. But once I started looking into her life, I'm like, okay, this is pretty interesting story. Yeah. She was a true crime girly, right? The OG true crime girly. Okay. Well, one of them anyways. But Frances Glessner Lee's life began against the backdrop of opulence and privilege nestled in the heart of Chicago in 1878. Born to John Jacob Glessner. <laughs> it's like when I was first trying to find John information on the Jacob. dad. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, John Jacob, Jingleheimer, shit. Um, John Jacob Glessner and his wife, her name was also Frances. And I thought you were going to say her name was also John Jacob. <laughs> two John Jacobs. That's the episode. <laughs> this is the interesting. No, but they, uh, they called... The younger Francis, the girl we're talking about today, they called her Fanny growing up. Mm. That was her nickname. And her father, John, insane money, Madison. Ooh, from what? Well, he was a prolific writer, a key player in various Chicago organizations, but he was the vice president of this firm called Warder Bushnell and Glessner, which is a firm that oversaw a lot of the like harvesting ventures that were happening across the Midwest at the time. Hmm. And he was most famously attached to the International Harvester. This affluence allowed Francis to relish in the comfort of her family's lavish lifestyle, growing up in a massive 13 bedroom bedroom mansion on a sought after street in Chicago. I was Mm. reading more about the house and they had like, I think it was like 13 bedrooms. They had 11 fireplaces in the house. Oh my God. Really incredible. Does that mean 11 chimneys? Well, I, they gotta go some, well, actually, I don't know because they probably line up. Oh, okay. You know, in some houses, it's like the fireplace downstairs lines up with the one upstairs. Okay. So maybe just like four or five chimneys. It's just actually their whole roof was just chimneys. chimneys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a crime in itself. And that's the story. They lived in a chimney. They lived in a chimney oh. and they laughed in a chimney. Okay. Her and her brother, George, were homeschooled by private tutors who would come to their estate. And I guess they had this big classroom inside of the house that was just for their studies. What's cool about this is I think it was really beneficial, obviously to both the children, but especially Francis, because at the time women were not taught the same subjects in school as men. Mm -hmm. This is something that's really prevalent. We'll see more so when we look at the siblings' journeys post high school. But the details about Francis's upbringing are relatively scarce. I was reading some historical snippets that shed light on her parents' story. Okay. And this is actually really cool. So we know, you know, the dad's super successful, blah, blah, blah. But how they met is kind of a cute story. So the OG Francis, Mama Francis, uh-huh. her mom, she grew up in Ohio predominantly with her mom. Her dad was not really in the picture. I guess he had moved out to California to go on some business venture and then eventually made his way back to the East Coast and was doing some stuff in New York. But he only visited Ohio twice a year. So it was pretty much Francis and her mom. Okay. And her mom really needed to make the money stretch. So she started renting out like rooms, turned their house into kind of a boarding house. Uh Uh-huh. And when Frances was 15 in 1863, her mom rented out a room in their home to a 20-year-old John Glessner. So she's 15, he's 20, and over the next couple of years, 
they started to have a romantic relationship, which led to them getting married in 1870 and then their subsequent relocation to Chicago. Oh, wow. So that was how the parents met. Yeah. And then obviously they went on to have George and then Francis. Hmm. A lot of the articles that I read about this family, the Glessners, they focus so much on the dad and all of his achievements. So I wanted to look a little more into the mom, Francis's life. And not only was she a skilled silversmith, which I thought was wow. Cool, she also was a proficient seamstress and she in her life made over 500 sweaters for children, employees and, and different servicemen, which I thought was wow. Her dedication to this craft was meticulously chronicled in a diary that she diligently maintained for over four decades. So 40 years, oh, this woman kept her diary. I love that. Okay, but you'll love this even more. So I guess she would she had a habit of falling ill. And when she was sick, <laughs> Her husband, John, would complete her diary entry for the day, like if she was too sick to write it, which I thought was- How cute. So sweet. I They had like a very affectionate relationship. He later wrote a memoir, and in it, he describes Frances as having a mind of order and wholesomeness with an overflowing heart for her family and friends. Oh. He just talks about how her eye for design is like responsible for how charming their house was in Chicago. Oh. I love it. We love, love a guy. that. In 1884, John embarked on building a new estate in New Hampshire known as the Rocks Estate now, where the family would go on to spend a significant part of each year. I think they spent like five months out of the year. Oh, must be nice. It's a beautiful house. I'll, sh- I'll show you. Look. Mmm. Are those rocks? Yeah, it's like, I mean, the whole house is pretty much made of stone, it looks like. The estate now stands famous for its yearly Christmas tree farm. <gasps> Just so happy. I love a Christmas tree farm. Can I say one thing? Yeah. <laughs> this is, I know this is cool. You know, this is not obituary and I'm going to say stupid shit. Did you know that telephone poles grow in a farm? A telephone pole farm? What? Yeah, I saw it on TikTok. Oh, then it must be true. <laughs> I don't know. I think that, that it's true, though. Like the telephone poles that you see. And I, I looked at pictures and there's rows and rows of telephone poles in a farm. It's where they raise them? I think so. I hope they raise them humanely. <laughs> I mean, I hope so, too. <laughs> I love a Christmas tree farm. To me, that is goals. I would... Love to eventually just imagine being retired and just having a Christmas. Like every year, that's the big thing, the Christmas tree farm. I know. Or like a pumpkin farm too. Uh Uh-huh. When I guess they had built this house, I read somewhere that the brother George had like terrible bouts of hay fever and like really bad allergies. Mm. And so it was actually a doctor that recommended to them that they should get a house in New Hampshire because he's like, people seem to fare really well over there. Oh, God, I wish I could do that. I know. I'm like, you're, imagine having aller- allergies and your parents are like, okay, we'll just build this massive estate. Yeah. Here. As Fanny and George got older, their educational paths diverged. So George, the brother, ends up getting accepted into Harvard University. Which Frances wanted to go to Harvard so bad. That was like her dream in life. But Harvard didn't accept female students until 1945. She had 
like other options that she could go to for school, but she wasn't interested. She was like, she was quoted somewhere saying like Harvard or nothing. Mm. She was apparently really interested in studying medicine initially, but she kind of put it on the back burner. Instead, she used this time to embark on a different journey. From 1896 to 1897, she traveled extensively throughout Europe. And then when she returned... In 1898, she settled down tying the knot with this guy named Blewett Harrison Lee, who was, I guess, a prominent lawyer at the time. And they ended up having three children of their own named John, Francis, and Martha. And I was getting so confused when I was reading. Yeah. Because, what is it, like the necronyms or whatever? Yeah. Naming them after each other. I'm like, how many fucking Johns are there? I know. My grandparents did that. My great-grandparents did that. My grandma was actually, it's fitting, her, she was Francis. Her mom was Francis. Her dad was Mearns. Her brother was Mearns. Who you talking to? Who you talking to? Who you yelling down the hallway for? Junior. You could say junior, but what do you say for a girl? Juniora. Juniora. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Cult Leader is sponsored by BetterHelp. Cult Babes, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Are you hitting the gym, hitting the sheets for a little nap, looking at your neighbor's house on Zillow? Really though, if time was unlimited, how would you use it? How would you decide what's important enough to make time for? Unfortunately, time is not unlimited, but fortunately, therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. That's one of my biggest takeaways from therapy, figuring out where to devote time to make the rest of my life easier. I could go on forever about how much less stressful life is once I learn to prioritize my time, but why don't you see for yourself? Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash leader today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash leader. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's Amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So she got married to this guy, blah, blah, blah. They had kids. But then in 1914, he asked Francis for a divorce. And so suddenly she found herself in a completely different position because she had really been focused on like education and studying her entire life. She was super smart. And then... Well, that doesn't make a good wife. (laughs) What does the mom say in Matilda? 
Oh, God, she's such a fucking nightmare. What does she say? I just remember, like, curlers in her hair. She said, look, Miss Snit, a girl does not get anywhere by acting intelligent. I mean, take a look at you and me. (laughs) You chose books. I chose looks. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking mom saying that. I love it. Love it. But all of a sudden, she's like... Okay, well, now what? Because I don't think she ever, based on what I've read about her, this is my personal opinion, I don't feel like she ever was the type that just wanted to settle down and have a nuclear family. Mm -hmm. I think it was just something that happened. And now that that had taken up years of her life, and she's all of a sudden faced with divorce and all of that, I think she's kind of like, well, what do I do now? Yeah. And I read for a while, her and her daughter, I guess, ran an antique shop together. Oh. But it eventually went out of business. She wanted to go to Harvard. And then after that... Who knows? She just kind of had to settle into life, I guess. Well, yeah, but I mean, life kept handing itself to her. The first loss in her family, her brother, George, who she was close to... Died when he was just 58 years old in 1929. And then a few years later, the mom passed away when she was in her 80s. And then the father passed away in the early 30s as well. Like, I think like I read a week before his 93rd birthday or something. Oh, I hate that. It's always sad. But also, that's a good run. 93 or 92. 92 and three quarters. And three quarters. (laughs) Not quite there. So she was hit with all of these deaths kind of like every couple of years. Somebody really, she was losing somebody really important to her. And then she herself fell ill in the early months of 1929, right after her brother had passed away, which resulted in her getting an operation. But this operation was about to change her life. Was it cosmetic? No. Oh. <laughs> and she was the most beautiful girl well. in her stone house. And honey, after a divorce, oh, why not? Why not? A little facelift, why not? A little nip and tuck, (laughs) okay? But she got this operation. I have no idea what this operation was. It is a mystery operation, could not figure it out for the life of me. You're like, Yep, it was that face BBL. Uh huh. She got got the first BBL, and that's why we're talking about her today. No, I I don't know what it was, but she ends up going to recover at the Phillips house, which I believe was slash is connected to the Massachusetts General Hospital. And while she's there recovering, she meets another patient who was recovering from cellulitis on his hands. His name was George McGrath. But get this, George had attended Harvard Medical School alongside George Glessner, Francis's brother. And so they knew each other. Okay. And not only that, but they had the same exact birthday, October 2nd, but just one year apart. And and this is by the time her brother's deceased. Yeah. So imagine meeting him. Oh, like, wow. It's a sign. Yeah. Well, and they ended up having a really close relationship, which we're about to get into. And I think they had actually met prior to this chance encounter. But either way, I feel like what are the odds that you both yeah. end up at this hospital together? But some people have questioned like throughout history whether or not the two had a romantic relationship. Okay. Especially because I think they met when she was still technically married to her ex-husband. So people People are like, did they have an affair? Uh-huh. But some guy wrote a book about this. His name is Bruce Goldfarb, and it's called 18 Tiny Deaths, The Untold Story of Francis Glessner Lee and the Invention of Modern Forensics. And he did 
a, a talk, I think around the time the book came out with a public library and they recorded it and put it on YouTube. And so I was watching it and he was like, I think he was gay. Mm, he, okay. So he thinks George McGrath was gay. He's like, I <laughs> can't verify that. But it seems like their relationship was always kind of pr- more professional with each other, though they had yeah. a great friendship. Um, no relationship there. Since the two were recovering at Philip's house side by side, they had plenty of time to chat with one another. And Frances was enthralled by all of the stories that George shared with her from his career in pathology. Okay. At this point in time, he was, he had never left Harvard. He went there as a student and then he became a staff member and really worked his way up there. But at this point in time, when he was hospitalized, he was an instructor at Harvard teaching legal medicine, a.k.a. forensic medicine. Mm. And as we mentioned earlier, Frances was kind of an OG true crime girly, so she ate it up. And he was, like, telling her about all the different cases that he'd worked on, cases that he had helped solve. And she was just so fascinated by all of this. But as time went on, he also started to vent to her about the lack of organization in forensics. Mm. His frustrations and the fact that coroners were not required to obtain medical degrees and that police were not trained properly in gathering and preserving medical evidence at the time. Okay. Um, Which is something that still obviously happens to this day i was gonna say we've talked about some stories or i know i know that we've heard some stories where the coroner will just like feel under the victim's armpit to like judge when they died Uh uh-huh like are they cold yet or they're kind of warm so it seems and it's like huh even all the tactics that we've learned about on like especially with obituary when dealing with crime scenes Mm -hmm. and dead bodies and verifying somebody's death Mm -hmm. i mean or just we've talked about the ways that they determine if someone is even dead and they twist their nipples twist their nipples remember that one they like stabbed a flag flag into the heart yeah to see if it would (laughs) beat see if that banner would wait (laughs) no just what it's so crazy to learn about history because you see how far we've come and just how wild it was absolutely I actually pulled up, I have this article from the Smithsonian from an episode where I covered, do you remember, basically, forensic scientists used to believe that you could see what a dead person last saw by, like, (gasps) examining their eyeballs? Yes, I, that was such a good episode. Well, it says- So wild. The article from Smithsonian says, image on her retina may show girl Slayer, reads a headline from a 1914 article in the Washington Times. A 20-year-old woman named Teresa Hollander had been beaten to death and her body was found in a cemetery, but the fact that her eyes were still open gave her family hope. Perhaps the last thing she saw, presumably the face of her murderer, was imprinted like the negative of a photograph on her retinas. Wow. <laughs> it's so wild. They, they really just didn't have a lot of insight into like what our bodies are doing and what they're actually capable of yeah and you can see we've talked about it before like the thought process behind it of like well that's how a camera develops maybe it's similar yeah our human eyes but or i think about fucking vampires they thought oh their bodies are doing something weird and really it was just a stage of decomposition Uh and like they're like nope they're vampires there's (laughs) blood they're vampires 
They're vampires. I know it. Or like, Spence, do you remember when I talked about, because we talk about so much of Victorian stuff on obituary, and I talked about Victorian crime scene investigating? Yes. Just how fucking stupid they were. (laughs) But like, people, if there was an active crime scene, Victorians would swarm to it. They loved it. Like it was entertainment. Uh Uh-huh. People would just show up and walk onto the crime scene and they would fuck so much up. I also remember that evidence would be removed from a scene and then sometimes cleaned until they needed it in court. (laughs) They're like, we're just going to like, we're just going to rub the blood off of this. It's dirty. (laughs) We don't want to bring it to court dirty. No. But then also they interrogated people and depended on eyewitnesses so heavily so like someone could just say something and that could be you know part of the investigation that's the scary thing about now because let me tell you this i got t-boned one time mm-hmm. and the guy tried to say to me he's like I, initially he was like so apologetic he's like oh my god i'm so sorry because he was fully wrong uh-huh and then I get a call one day for my insurance. He was claiming that it was my fault uh-huh. when I got T-boned. Uh-huh. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I was like, well, what's he saying? And they told me that he said that a, a witness mm. had seen it happen. A witness he happened to know because his daughter went to school with this woman's daughter or something. And so I fucking probably should not have done Allegedly, I called him and I was like, I just want you, you to know that I recorded our conversation that day. So you better tell the truth. Ooh. He did. Good. Yeah. Fucker. Schemy, scammy people. Uh, The first time I ever, I remember right after I got my license, I was driving like my mom's expedition, like Uh big ass expedition. And I was in the parking lot of a Starbucks and I backed into someone's car Uh and dented in their bumper. And it was this nice lady and she's just like, ah, Merry Christmas. Oh. Threw her hand up. I love that. Isn't that the best? That's the best. I've always remembered her and anytime something's like happened, I'm like, I try and just be nice to the person. Merry Christmas. Unless they were being an asshole, but especially like teenagers and stuff because you know they're fucking like, oh my God. Yeah. It's like, it's okay. It's the worst. Yeah. God. But imagine in that first scenario, if you didn't, if there weren't recordings even invented. Uh-huh. And he, he could fully just lie. People, I mean, people lie all the fucking time. That's how so many innocent people are in jail just from people fucking lying. But yeah, absolutely. Persecution by the people. But he was just, you know, really voicing a lot of frustrations to her at the time about the lack of professionalism mm-hmm. and... Basically how the police and coroners are fucking up criminal investigations from getting completed. He's like, all of these factors contribute heavily to our inability to solve these heinous crimes. And something about this really piqued Francis's interest and kind of got the wheels spinning in her head. Like, how can I make a difference? How can mm-hmm. I help here? Mm-hmm. And it, I think it really gave her a purpose. And it was really this perfect storm of right place, right time, right assets. As I mentioned, by the 1930s, Frances was the sole heir to her family's mass fortune. Mm. This coupled with her eagerness to assist George McGrath led her to making massive strides in the world of forensics. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft any new ideas maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy wait what i got it bombas absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow did we just write an ad yes 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. In 1936, she donated $25,000 to the Harvard School, which is millions in today's money, in order to build out a Department of Legal Medicine, as well as later on establishing the George Burgess McGrath Library of Legal Medicine for her friend George. So she really made good use of the money. Yeah. But that is not what she is known for, as you know. Mm Mm-hmm. So... There's this website called deathindiorama.com. I don't know if you researched it at all when Uh -uh. you were pulling information, but they say, quote, by 1936, Harvard was well underway in graduating medical examiners. And again, this is all because of Francis. However, violent deaths were still going unsolved because law enforcement didn't know how to handle or even identify pertinent medical evidence. Francis then inaugurated... Harvard Seminars in Homicide Investigation, later renamed to the Harvard Associates in Police Science Seminars, which was specifically tailored to the needs of law enforcement. She organized week-long seminars and and managed the curriculum with the help of Harvard University and extensive specialized research in forensics. The first Harvard Associates in Police Science, or HAPS, as they called it, the first seminar was held in 1945, and participants were invited from all around the Northeast and spent a week learning the art of crime scene detection. Wow. She invited experts to attend and lecture on all matters pertinent to death investigation, including identifying the victims, determining the time of death, the role that information played in an investigation, and interrogation techniques. Typically, 25 to 30 policemen of all ranks would be invited to these trainings. And upon completion, each graduate became a member of HAPS and was then part of a larger network of investigators. Quote, Francis took a special interest in training police officers because as the first to arrive on the scene of a crime, they had to identify and preserve evidence critical to solving the cases. At the time, most police officers inadvertently botched cases by touching, moving, or failing to identify evidence. (laughs) Lee was also extremely interested in better integrating the work of and communication among medical experts, police officers, forensic investigators, and prosecutors. And you really have to admire her dedication to making a change because she doesn't really have a tie in this. I mean, now she's made this financial contribution, but prior to this, it's not like she was directly affected by a murder It's not like she had actually gone to school and studied any of this. She was really doing this purely to help the world. Yeah. 
from what I gather, a lot of these trainings and seminars were making a huge difference in how police officers and other professionals analyzed crime scenes. But it was really the details that came from a crime scene that Francis, based on what she'd learned from George McGrath, made the world of difference. And this is what led to her eventually beginning a project dubbed the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. And this name stems from an old homicide investigator saying, convict the guilty, clear the innocent, and find the truth in a nutshell. Now, this project, which is what you talked about at our live show, the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death, is what Frances is perhaps most well-known for and why she's been dubbed the mother of forensic science. And it wasn't because of her financial contributions. It was because of her enthusiasm to help as well as her creative mind. She'd always been kind of more of a crafty girl growing up. And she had learned a lot from her mom, who, as I mentioned, was like a seamstress. Yeah. And since she was a teenager, Frances had an interest in miniatures. Oh, I love her. Love her. In fact, she once gifted her mother a diorama that was a miniature replica of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Wow. And so throughout her life, she had begun building these little miniature dioramas. But throughout the 1940s, she was like, I'm going to put these to good use. And she ended up making a series of 20 dioramas depicting the crime scenes that she had studied from various police files. Okay. And I guess she would make like two to three of these a year. Year, and I read that in today's money, she spent around twenty to thirty thousand dollars on each diorama. Whoa! Yeah, that's crazy. Because she got so fucking detailed with it. Yeah. Like, if she read in one of the investigations or one of the police reports about a certain clothing item someone was wearing, uh-huh. she would like make sure she like nailed the fabric. Yeah, she used nail polish, I guess, to make blood splatter on the crime scene. Okay. I'll post pictures of these, but just picture these like little dollhouse sized rooms meticulously crafted with accurate representations of crime scenes. According to a 1952 edition of the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, Francis wrote that the dioramas were an exercise in observing, interpreting, evaluating, and reporting. And the point was really, again, to teach police officers to observe even the most minute and seemingly insignificant details at a crime scene and to consider everything they saw as clues that could help them solve the case. Wow. And so she would do things like on these little miniature dioramas, she would even stop the clock at the time that the person was killed in the police report. So she made sure these were very thorough. Oh, I want to see them in person. I know. Well, you can't. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, thank no, you. They were all, some of them were on display mm-hmm. for a period of time, but because the information in them was tied to real cases that, okay. were, that were still technically cold. Okay. They didn't want to give that up. And they were still yeah. used and have been used forever for the study of forensics. Again, according to deathanddiorama.com, to create her miniature crime scene, she often blended the detail of several true stories, embellishing facts here and there and changing the details every once in a while. What an incredible mind, you know? Uh-huh. She Well, and she did a lot of this herself. She had help from a carpenter who eventually started helping her build out little things for the projects but she researched her crimes using newspaper reports and interviews with policemen and morgue workers wow on a scale of one inch to one foot she presented real life suicides as accidental deaths accidents as homicides and homicides as potential suicides she even used fictional deaths to round out her arsenal material evidence at any given crime scene is overwhelming but with the proper knowledge and techniques investigators could be trained to identify and collect 
collect the evidence in a systematic fashion. She hoped that her nutshell studies would help. The point was not to solve the crime in the model, but to observe and notice important details and potential evidence, facts that could affect the investigation. I'm actually surprised at how little information is out there other than like the details that I've shared today. But I did stumble upon an article from BuzzFeed from last year, actually. And they had an article and in it they write, quote, Lee's dolls are dead, horrifically so, soaked in blood from gunshot wounds, hanging from rafters, a noose around their necks, sprawled on a hardwood floor, their head bashed in with a minuscule hammer nearby. There's even a baby in a crib with blood splattering the headboard and wall behind it. These gruesome crime scenes aren't meant for morbid entertainment. Instead, Lee, the nation's first, which it says first woman police captain and a forensic science pioneer, created these dioramas called the nutshells of unexplained death as a training tool for homicide investigators to convict the guilty, clear the innocent, and find the truth in a nutshell. Okay, in the book, he says she is, but everywhere else says that it was an honorable title oh, okay. and that she wasn't actually a police captain. Well, give it to her. I Well, I was hung up on the fact because I kept researching. I'm like, okay, I read she was a police captain. When did that happen? And I was I was Googling like, when did Francis Lee or Glessner Lee become a police captain? And it, it's all just says honorable. Okay. Okay. But in the book, he's like, absolutely, this happened. They actually have some good pictures in this article. And they mention that they were, the dioramas were part of a Smithsonian American Art Museum exhibit five years ago. But now they're being held at the office of the chief medical examiner in Baltimore. And they're still being used specifically for forensics training classes. Oh, I love that. They talk about a few of the rooms in here alongside pictures of them. And they give some close-up images of the actual actual dioramas and there's one called the barn and there's several in this article i'll link it in the sources obviously but there's one they call the barn and you can see in the image it's this guy sitting or like standing on a rafter he has a, mm-hmm. a noose around his neck and i mean the barn itself looks real he looks like a little doll yeah. <laughs> but it says in this article on saturday july 15th 1939 Eben Wallace, a local farmer, was found dead by his wife Imelda. After disagreements, she told police her husband habitually went to the barn, stood on a bucket, put a noose around his neck, and threatened suicide. She always talked him down. On Saturday around 4 p.m., they had a dispute, but she didn't follow him to the barn right away. When she did, she found him dead, standing on a collapsed crate. The sturdier bucket wasn't in the barn. She said she'd used it and left it outside by the pump. The rope was always kept fastened to the beam, just the way it was found. It was part of the regular barn hoist. Is it murder if Imelda Wallace, tired of her deeply unpleasant husband's manipulation, hid the bucket and maybe even put a flimsy crate in its place? So it's kind of like... Makes you think. Uh Uh-huh. And really, people weren't analyzing crime scenes this way prior to these advances in forensic science. There's another one called The Dark Bathroom that they talk about in this article. And it says, on a Saturday night in early November of 1896, Maggie Wilson was found dead in her bathtub by Lizzie Miller, a neighbor in their rooming house. Miller, who only knew Wilson in passing, told police she thought Wilson was subject to seizures. She said a couple of male friends regularly visited Wilson, including that Sunday night, and she believed they were all drinking. Sometime after they left, Miller heard the water still running in the bathroom, and upon opening the door, she found the scene as set forth in the model. And then it says, Clues. It's hard to confirm with a doll, but the body seems to be in rigor mortis.
nervous. There appears to be lividity in the face, and her clothes in the bathtub are dry. If she'd been preparing to take a bath, it would seem as if she would have at least put a stopper in first, and it's hanging off the side of the tub. It's entirely possible that Wilson had a seizure and drowned, but the timing and circumstances call into question whether she was alone when she died. Wow. Interesting. I could read these all. They're so interesting. Well, then there's the kitchen, which you showed at the live show. Yeah. Did you read the backstory behind that? I don't know the backstory. Okay, well, I have to tell you then. It says, on Tuesday, April 11th, 1944, a man named Fred Barnes called the police to say that his wife, Barbara, was lying unresponsive on their kitchen floor. He said that he had left the house at 4 p.m. to go downtown on an errand for his wife and returned about an hour and a half later. Although the outside kitchen door was standing open when he left, it was now locked. He attempted knocking and calling but got no answer. He tried the front door but it was also locked. He then looked in the kitchen window, which was closed and locked, and saw what appeared to be his wife lying on the floor. He then summoned the police. The model shows the premises just before the police forced open the kitchen door. But... The gas stove jets are on. Barbara's face has the rosy complexion typical of carbon monoxide poisoning. Mm -hmm. And Lee had painted all of her doll's faces to indicate lividity or lack thereof. Uh Uh-huh. And newspaper had been stuffed at the bottom of the doors. But did she really decide to kill herself in the middle of cooking and baking and washing and taking ice cubes out of the refrigerator? Is is it significant that the iron is precariously placed in an otherwise extremely tidy kitchen (gasps) on the edge of the ironing board near where she fell? Note that we, aka the crime scene investigators here, can't see the back of her head. (gasps) Oh, okay. Uh Uh-huh. So her husband did it and tried to set it up. Oh, make it look like a suicide. Uh Uh-huh. But she is missing the back of her skull. I think it's just really impressive the amount of details that went into this. Yeah. I mean, God bless her. She really did a lot for forensic pathology. Yeah. She lived a long life. She died peacefully at her home at the Rocks Estate in New Hampshire on January 27th, 1962 at the age of 83 and was interred in the Maple Street Cemetery in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. Wow. She, you guys have got, I mean, you'll post the pictures obviously on Cult Leader. You guys have to go look at them. They're so cool. I love a miniature of anything, (laughs) but the fact that these little miniature dollhouses represent murder scenes and how much they helped. It's very cool. It is cool. And that's why I thought she was cool. And I was like, it seems kind of random to do a a full episode on someone like this. But I'm like, we're always talking about victims. We're always talking about the perpetrators. But so rarely are we talking about the people that actually are responsible for helping. And like, obviously, they're not making miniature dioramas all the time of crime scenes trying to look at things that way. Yeah. But I'm sure her efforts and her doings are responsible for like a ripple effect, you know, Yeah. of all the advancements that have followed. So, you know, hats off to her. I think she's incredible. Hats off to her. I think any type of like medium that you can use to get the correct answer uh-huh. should be used. I also read somewhere that the answers to all of these are like locked away. Yeah, because one, they still teach people with them. Yeah. Two, because I guess some of the details are things that only the killer would know. Okay. So okay. Away. And then also in your research, I heard that she is like a big inspiration for murder she wrote. Yes. Angela okay. Lansbury. Okay. She was 
Miss Murder She Wrote. Okay. How cool. Quite a legacy. Quite a legacy. And a story that needed to be told. And I think more people should know about her. And I also want them to make a fucking movie about her. Because how cool would it be to have like a 1940s film Uh about this woman fucking changing the course of forensic pathology with these little dioramas. I just love that. Yeah. Like grown men are having to study these little dollhouses. She's like, I actually didn't go to Harvard and I'm going to sit here at Harvard and I'm going to explain to you how to do this. She's like Elle Woods. Yes. (laughs) You know. Elle Woods went to Harvard. Oh, well. So that's where we're going to leave it for the week. Doesn't matter if you can't go to the school of your dreams because you might just get there eventually. And you never know what your hobby will do for this world. Go to Hobby Lobby. Don't go to Hobby Lobby. Okay, don't. Where's another one? Michael's. Go to Michael's. You know what? Go to Michael's, build your miniature house, and if anyone ever degrades you for it, say, I'm sorry, have you heard of Francis Glessner Lee? Yeah. Okay. Thanks again to Madison for joining us for this episode. You said, hey, I'm going to tell you about something. And I said, hey, I'm going to find the longest version of it possible and tell it back to you. Oh, my God. (laughs) What a doll. What a doll. Catch Madison every Thursday on Obituary Podcast, (laughs) wherever you listen. And I'll be there, too. I'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.